Good morning. If you would open your Bibles to John chapter 16. We are finishing up the uh, Upper Rim Discourse proper today. John chapter 17 is the prayer of Jesus after the Upper Rim Discourse, and, and it's really part of these chapters, John 13 through 17. But today, John chapter 16, 16 through 33, we get the final words, the final instructions of Jesus to his disciples before he goes to the cross. These are his final words. What did the disciples believe when they decided to follow Christ? When, when Jesus came to them and said, follow me, what did they believe was going to happen? What did they believe he was going to do? Well, the Old Testament gives us this picture. And this is probably what they believed. The Old Testament gives this picture that, that God, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. Almost right away, Adam and Eve fell into sin. And at that moment, God made a promise to crush the head of the serpent. He made that promise. And throughout the Old Testament, God continued to make promises to his people in line with that promise. Promises to deliver his people from their sins. Promises to to bring his kingdom about in the world, to fill the earth with his glory. Ultimately, Ultimately, God promised to create a new heavens and a new earth full of his glory, the kingdom of God, redeemed from the fall, redeemed from sin. That's what God promised his people. And so the disciples understood that they lived in an evil age. They lived in an age marked by the fall, marked by sin, but that a day was coming when God would break history in half. The the evil age would be behind them. The day of the Lord would come, and the new creation would be forever in the future. The prophets are filled with the phrase, in that day, in that day, in that day. And whenever that is used, they are saying there is a day coming, the day of the Lord, where there will be judgment and salvation. Judgment on all sinners and salvation for God's people, and it will break history into two. And God promised he would do that by sending a Messiah by sending a Savior, by sending His King to come and and, and inaugurate that day of the Lord, to come and make that happen. And so when Jesus comes and He says, the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus is saying, that day is here. I'm here, that day is here. I'm the Messiah, I'm the one. And when He called the disciples to follow Him, He was calling them to believe that He was the one who would bring this split about. And they believed that at one point, soon, Jesus was going to judge sinners and save his people and bring in the new heavens and the new earth. This is how they thought. This is what they hoped in. This is what the Old Testament taught them to hope in. What they didn't understand was that there was going to be an overlap of the ages. That was a mystery in the Old Testament. They didn't realize that the evil age would continue once the day of the Lord began. 
And they didn't realize that the, the new creation would, in some sense, start without being completed. There was an overlap of the ages. If you picture a timeline, you picture just one age, blank, another age, right? And then what you have here is the two are overlapping. There's this, there's this middle ground. When did that overlap happen? It happened when Jesus came and he, he died and he rose again and he ascended into heaven. When, when he died and rose again and ascended into heaven, his resurrection marked the beginning of the new creation. His resurrection marked the beginning of all of God's promises in the Old Testament. His resurrection marked, marked essentially the fulfillment of it, but not the consummation of it. Because even though he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and his disciples remained in a world that was still fallen. They remained in bodies that were still broken. And Jesus promised that one day I will return the same way I left, and I will consummate what I began. I will, I will finish what I inaugurated and the new heavens and new earth will, will give away. And that's, that's why John can say in his epistle in 1 John, he says, the world is already passing away. The world's already passing away because Jesus has risen again. But it's not quite gone yet. Th- this is what you call the already and not yet. And it was something the disciples were utterly unprepared for. They had no mentality for this. And in the upper room discourse, we have seen over and over again that Jesus is seeking to prepare his disciples for what they don't understand yet. They are utterly confused, but he is giving them instructions that, that once he rises in a sense and once the Spirit comes, then they'll look back and say, that's what he meant. That's what he meant. And in these final instructions, Jesus is emphasizing with them the already, not yet, that they are about to experience. And in that, he, he wants to tell them this truth. That in that day, the time between my resurrection and return, you will be marked by joy. Your lives will be marked by joy. Yes, there will be difficulty. Yes, there will be sorrow. Yes, there will be sickness. Yes, there will be sin. Yes, there will be tribulation. But underneath it all, you will be marked by joy. He's calling them to the joy that will be theirs in this section. It's a joy that will come to them when Jesus comes again. If you would, let's begin by reading verses 16 through 19 and try to get a framework for this text together. Starting in verse 16, John chapter 16, verse 16. Jesus says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us, A little while, and you won't see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. It's going to pause there, all right? And I want to ask you, look at your text, what, what three words come up over and over and over again in those four verses? A little while. A little while. A little while. Four, four times, no, seven times in four verses. Seven times in four verses we, we get these words, a little while, a little while, a little while. Jesus says it, the disciples say it, 
This is John's way of communicating to us. This is, this is significant. <laughs> but, but by repeating it over and over again, he's, he's saying, understand, understand what I'm saying here. The interesting thing is the disciples didn't understand it. <laughs> they didn't grasp it at all. Listen to what they're saying. Look, they say, what is this that he says to us? What does he mean? We don't know what he's talking about. They're completely confused, as they often were during their three years with Jesus. But John does not intend for us to be confused today. John doesn't intend for us to be confused because we have the privilege of looking back at what for them was still future. We can look back now and understand what Jesus meant here. And so today, before we can really go through the rest of the text, we need to understand what did Jesus mean by saying, a little while and you won't see me, and again, a little while and you will see me. And how do we even begin to answer that question? We need to let the first three chapters of the Upper Room Discourse really be our guide here. These, the rest of the Upper Room Discourse up to this point will help us understand what he means here. Because Jesus here is, is really trying to summarize and distill for his disciples what he's been trying to say to them over and over again. And so, so what does he mean by a little while and you won't see me, and again, a little while and you will see me? There are really three possibilities. All right? there, there, we have three options. First, Jesus could be referring to his death and his resurrection. Okay, so, so what that would mean is that he's saying to them, in a little while you won't see me because I will have been crucified. And again, a little while and you will see me because I will have been raised again. That's one thing he could mean. And we actually see Jesus referring to his departure this way throughout the Upper Room Discourse. When Jesus says he's going, he always means at least that he's going to the cross. And in, in, in chapter 13, verse 36, this is just one example, one clear example. He, he, he tells Peter, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. What is he talking about there? He's saying, I'm going to the cross. You can't follow me to the cross, but you will follow afterward. Jesus has been saying over and over, I'm going, and I'm going to the cross. And so here when he says, a little while and you won't see me, it's possible he's referring to his death, which means, again, a little while you will see me refers to his resurrection. That's, that's one option, his death and resurrection. Option two is that Jesus is referring to his departure from this world to the Father and the Spirit's arrival. And we've seen this quite a bit in the Upper Room Discourse, right? We saw it last week. Jesus said, if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus has continued to talk about, I'm going to leave, but the Spirit's going to come. In John 14, 18, listen to how Jesus refers to the coming of the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 18, he said to them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That, that's what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit coming. He said, I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. He, he says, my Father will come to you. In that, in that section, he's talking about the Holy Spirit there, but obviously he's saying that when the Holy Spirit comes, there's a sense in which I'm coming to you. And so in a little while, you won't see me because I'm going to the Father. But again, a little while, you will see me because I'm coming to you via the Holy Spirit. So, so that's option two, okay? Option one, death and resurrection. Option two, his departure and the Spirit's arrival. Option three, again, his departure and then his physical arrival again, his return in glory. So, so what this would mean is he's saying, in a little while you won't see me because I'm going to the Father, 
And again, a little while and you will see me because I'm coming again in glory. And again, we've seen this in the Upper Room Discourse. In John 14, 3, Jesus said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So Jesus has already told them, I'm leaving, but I'm going to come again for you. You're going to be where I am. And so sometimes Jesus refers to his, his going away as the day he physically goes away, and then his return is the day he physically returns. And so we have these three options. Jesus, Jesus begins by saying to his disciples, a little while you won't see me, a little while you will. Disciples are confused. We shouldn't be confused today. Which one is it? Yes. <laughs> That's the answer. The answer is yes. It's all, it's all three. The reason Jesus is so ambiguous is because he wants to use language that encompasses all three of these things. He is giving them a framework for understanding everything from his resurrection to his return. He's giving them a framework to understand what right now they have no categories to understand. It's interesting that he, he actually, in this whole passage, you'll see he does not once say the word resurrection. He does not once refer to the Spirit. He does not once refer explicitly to his return in glory. But all three are just soaked throughout this text. He's using language that they can look back on and say, that's what he meant. And that today we can look back on it and know that's what he meant. And so he, he says, a little while you won't see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Now the entire Upper Room Discourse has been dominated by Jesus' message, I'm going away. That's been what he's been, he's been trying to get that through to disciples. I'm going away. I'm leaving. You're going to be without me. But in this final section, Jesus emphasizes that though he's going away, he is coming again. Though he's going away, he is coming again. He wants his disciples to know that. He's coming again through his resurrection. He's coming again through the Spirit. He's coming again through his return in glory. And when he comes again, joy will come too. This brings us to the main idea for today's message. And put simply, put as simply as I can, Jesus' coming brings joy. Jesus' coming brings joy. Amen. But... We've already seen that, his, that, that in this text, his coming is a multifaceted thing, right? So when we say Jesus' coming brings joy, that there's multiple ways to understand that. And so here's, here's the big idea put a little bit more precisely. And so I'll, I'll say this a couple of times so you can get it, but here's, here's what this passage teaches. Because Jesus came again through his resurrection and by his Spirit, we can experience unassailable and abundant joy now, even as we await the day he comes again in glory. Okay, I'll say that again. Because Jesus came again through his resurrection and by his spirit, because that's happened, we can experience unassailable and abundant joy now, even as we wait for his coming again in glory. And I hope you see the relationship of these three comings in that passage. For, for us here today, he has already risen again. 
The Spirit has already come. And so we look back on those. We say, because this is true, because this has happened today, where we stand right now in this already not yet time of history, we can have joy, unassailable joy, abundant joy, even as we're waiting for that final consummation. Even as we're waiting. That's what Jesus is wanting his disciples to understand. That's what he wants us to understand. And, and again, he's holding out joy to us today. You know, when we go to people with the gospel, ultimately, what are we offering them? We are offering them joy in Christ. Joy in this life. Joy that cannot be taken away. Joy that is as full as full can be. Joy that lasts longer than any other joy. That is what we offer when we offer the gospel. Joy in Jesus Christ. And Jesus wants his disciples to know that that joy is coming. That joy is coming to them. So let's begin to walk through that main idea as we walk through this text. And we'll see all three of these realities as we go. And so first, in verses 20 through 22, joy when Jesus comes through resurrection. Joy when Jesus comes through resurrection. Because Jesus came again through his resurrection, we can experience unassailable joy. Let's read verses 20 through 22 together. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman has given birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In a little while, the disciples would not see Jesus anymore. That's because in just a few hours, Jesus is going to be arrested, falsely tried, and crucified. The hour of his death has come, and the unbelieving world is about to rejoice. The world that Jesus has just said hates him and hates the Father and hates the disciples, they're going to rejoice because they are going to take Jesus, and they're going to put him to death. And while the world is rejoicing at his death, the disciples in just a few hours, we'll be weeping and lamenting. Think with me about the level of sorrow the disciples must have experienced when Jesus was crucified. Think about the grief of losing someone they loved in a way that we can all relate to when we lose someone we love. That that grief that, that he's gone. The anger of knowing that one of their friends made it happen. Knowing that one of their friends betrayed him. The shame that in his hour of need, they fled from him. The despair that God's Messiah has been put to death by God's people. The confusion about their final hours with Jesus, ending like this. Jesus tells them ahead of time, in a little while I won't be with you, 
and you will be sorrowful. You will weep and lament. There probably is not a more potent combination of shame and anger and grief and confusion and desperation than what the disciples felt on that Friday night and that Saturday. What does Jesus promise? Your sorrow will turn into joy. Your sorrow will turn into joy. Your weeping will turn into rejoicing. Your lamenting will turn into gladness. And when will that happen? Just a little while longer. And just a little while longer because they're going to see him again. Jesus tells the disciples that, that those sorrows about to come upon them because of his death, that sorrow will be transformed into joy when he rises from the dead on the third day. Let's think about that as well. Think about the joy they must have experienced when they saw Jesus risen from the dead. The grief of losing someone they loved was transformed into the joy of having him back. The anger of knowing he was betrayed was transformed into the joy of knowing that he was in control the whole time. The shame of fleeing at his hour of need was transformed into the joy of loving restoration and forgiveness. The despair that God's Messiah had been put to death was transformed into the joy of God's Messiah conquering death itself. You know, I know for myself, I kind of have a false picture in my mind sometimes about what the scene looked like. Oh, Jesus is alive. Great. That's great. Good to have you back. No, this was not a subdued, calm scene. They were probably very confused. I'll give you that. They had questions. They had doubts. But they were exuberant. Peter ran to him. They were excited. They were rejoicing. Jesus was back from the dead. Their sorrow transformed into joy. Jesus gives us an analogy to help us understand what they were experiencing. The analogy is is labor and delivery. (laughs) Labor and delivery. And, you know, when we had our first baby, when we had Lucy... uh, Lucy came like 10 days late. She was never going to come. And, and so we're, we're waiting every night going to bed, and, and it began to really feel like, yeah, this is just not, this is not going to happen. And then I think it was a Saturday night. We missed church the next day. And a Saturday night, uh, 2 a.m., Candace wakes up, and, and her water breaks. It's like, it's going to happen, all right? So I jump out of bed, and I'm excited. I make coffee. First thing you got to do, at 2 a.m. you're driving to the airport, make some coffee. I gleefully call the hospital. We're having a baby. Can we come? I skip to the car with our bags. You know, I just, I, I'm just so happy and so excited. And we're driving to Birmingham, and, and I realize Candace isn't quite feeling what I'm feeling right now. <laughs> she, she, she's experiencing something different than what I'm experiencing. She, she was excited, but, but she was... Begin, beginning to feel the labor pains, and, and, and hours of labor and exhaustion later, and Lucy arrived. And while I, I could never even quantify the amount of joy I felt in that moment, I can say that I know Candace felt more joy than I did in that moment. The, the, the moment that, that she got to hold Lucy for the first time after, after caring 
her for nine months and then ten days, and then going through labor and the exhaustion of the day and then holding her baby girl, Jesus says, that's the kind of joy you're going to experience to the disciples. It's going to be, you're going to be sorrowful. You're going to, you're going to be confused. You're going to be, you're going to be grieving, but it's going to turn into joy in just a little while. And then he says one more thing about this joy. He says, no one will take your joy from you. No one will take it from you. This is why I say it's an unassailable joy. Might seem like a strange word, but no one can take it. It's unassailable. It's protected. It's guarded. It's safe. And joy in this world is not that way. There are things we can find great joy in in this world, but it is not unassailable. Anything we look to in this world for joy can be taken from us. But Jesus says, no one will take this joy from you. It's interesting that he doesn't say nothing will take it from you because that would seem more all-encompassing, that, that a circumstance could take it away. This, this thing could happen that could take it away. But he says no one will take it away. Why does he say no one as if there's, as if there's a person that's going to try to take their joy away from them? I think it gives us a hint as, as to what he means. Because here's the thing. Jesus had just been taken away from them. He's about to be. He's, he's going to be taken from them. He's going to be taken from them by Judas and by the Jewish leaders and by the Gentile rulers. He's going to be taken from them. But when he rises from the dead, he rises with a resurrection body, with an incorruptible body that cannot be taken away. He cannot be taken away. And and. And what this means when he says your joy cannot be taken from you, what he's saying is, I'm your joy. I'm your joy. Your joy won't be taken because I'm your joy and I can't be taken from you. Your joy is in me and I'm incorruptible. My resurrection body is unassailable and therefore your joy is unassailable. Well, up to this point, we, we've talked about the experience of the disciples during the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. But that, that is admittedly hard to apply to us because we weren't there when this happened. We live in a different time than they did. We weren't, we weren't sorrowful when Jesus, we weren't there. We just come and, and know he's been made alive. So how does this apply to us? Well, we live in a world that gives us countless reasons to be sorrowful. And we are very good at distracting ourselves from it. We're very good at just moving on from the headline. We're very good at, at, at just turning on some music or, or doing something else and, and not letting the countless sorrows that are in this broken world affect us until they hit close to home. The longer we live, the more we will lose. And the more we will lose, the more we will weep and lament. But here's the thing. There is one joy that can never, ever be taken away. It is an unassailable joy in Jesus Christ, the Savior who died for our sins and rose again 
And though there be a thousand sources of sorrow in our lives, underneath all those sources of sorrow is a constantly flowing stream of joy in Jesus Christ. We never need to stop drinking from Christ as the source of our joy. And so how do you get this unassailable joy? How do you get it? You repent and you believe in him. You, you, you stop, to put it in the language of the text, you stop rejoicing with the world that he's dead and you begin rejoicing with the disciples that he's alive. You turn from your rejection of Christ. You turn from your dishonoring of Christ. You turn from saying that we don't want you to, to realizing you are the one we want. You are the one we need. Unassailable joy in Christ is possible because Jesus rose from the dead and it can be yours if you turn to him as your greatest joy. If you turn to Christ as your greatest joy, then your joy can never be taken away because he is risen from the dead. He died for your sins, he rose again, and in himself he offers you joy that no one can take. So Jesus' resurrection brings unassailable joy to all who believe in him. But he didn't just come again through his resurrection. He came again through his spirit. And so this is the next section of the text today. Joy when Jesus comes by his Spirit. Joy when he comes by his Spirit. Because Jesus came again by his Spirit, we can experience abundant joy. Let's read at verse 23. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and I've come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus begins this section by saying, in that day. In that day. What day is he talking about? Well, based on what we just said, he's talking about the day he rises from the dead, right? He just told them, you're going to see me, you're going to rejoice in that day, the day he rises from the dead. But remember what we said earlier about about the Old Testament prophets? What, What phrase did they use to describe the day of the Lord and the new creation that came after? In that day. In that day. I believe Jesus is intentionally using this phrase here to say the day of my resurrection is the day that that new creation starts. The day I rise from the dead is is the day that you enter into the new age, enter into the new creation. It's a new era in redemptive history. Jesus, Jesus is speaking about the day of his resurrection, how it brings about a brand new situation for his disciples. And what what does it bring about? It brings about a vibrant, personal relationship with God as your Father. Jesus' resurrection will bring about an era in which we have a vibrant, real, personal relationship with God as our Father. You, You see, he talks about praying to the Father. He talks about knowing the Father. He talks about being loved by the Father. It's a day when the disciples will no longer come to Jesus and say, Jesus, can you ask the Father for us? They're going to go to him themselves. 
It's a day when they won't be confused anymore. They're not going to say, what does he mean? What is he talking about? But they're going to, they're going to understand who the Father is. As we said earlier, we, we see the Father's plan unfolded now. We understand because this day has come. It's a day when the disciples won't just believe that Jesus is God's beloved son, but they're going to believe we are his beloved sons. We are his beloved children. He loves us. And this day begins on the day of his resurrection. Now, if this day begins on the day of his resurrection, then why did I say, because Jesus came again by the Spirit? Why, did I, why am I talking about the Spirit in this point if, if this is the day of his resurrection? And, and it's because all of this, prayer to the Father, knowing the Father, being loved by the Father, these are, these are gifts that come through the resurrection of Christ, but they're experienced by the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has said this. If we went back and traced through John 13, John 14, John 15, John 16, we would see over and over again, Jesus says, the Spirit will come and my Father will love you when he comes. The Spirit will come and you will pray in my name. The Spirit will come and he will teach you all things. And so as he makes these promises here about this relationship with the Father, we know that he's talking about the day when the Spirit comes, when he comes to us by the Spirit. Look what he says in verse 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. When Jesus goes to the Father, who comes? The Spirit. And the Spirit will guide us into all truth. The Spirit will lead us in praying in Jesus' name. The Spirit will pour the Father's love into our hearts. So Jesus is telling the disciples, in a little while, you won't see me because I'm going to the Father. But you will see me because I'm sending my spirit to you. And when I do, you will experience the abundant joy of relationship with God as your Father. You know, I was thinking on this text this week, isn't joy really always in relationship? Like real joy? Isn't it always about a relationship? We don't have a real, real joy about a thing or about a job. We... Real joy comes through relationship, and Jesus here promises the joy of relationship with the one and only God as your Father. That's what his resurrection is going to bring about. That's what the Spirit will enable us to experience. How exactly does Jesus say we'll experience this? How does he say we'll we'll get this joy? Look at verse 24. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. We experience the abundant joy of having God as our Father by the Spirit. We experience that by asking the Father for things in Jesus' name what he says. He he says, your level of joy in your relationship with the Father is directly related to the request you make of him. And and so I want to ask right now, evaluate in your own heart, how much joy do I have in my relationship with the Father? How much joy do I have that I am God's child, and that he's adopted me, and that I get to pray to him, and I get to know him, and I get to experience his love. How much joy do I have in that? 
what Jesus would say is, your joy will be full when you ask the Father in Jesus' name. This, this might seem a little bit surprising to us. What, what, what's the relationship there between these two things? What, why does asking correlate to joy in God? Little children, like little children, like Lucy, cannot do anything without their parents' help. Anything, <laughs> right? They can't make their meals. They can't put their clothes on. They can't go to the potty by themselves. That's right, I just said potty. I'm a dad, all right? So they can't do anything by themselves. They live in complete dependence on their parents for everything. And you know what? When they live in that dependence, they're at their happiest. When little children live dependently on their parents because they really are dependent, they experience their happiest life now, right? They, 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 experience, they experience joy. They experience what it's meant to be to be a kid, right? Now, what happens when they start, no, I don't need your help. I'll make my lunch. I'll, I'll go to the bathroom. I'll, things go south quickly, right? Here's the thing. We are like little children. Jesus told us, you have to become like a little child. And the reason he said that is because little children are dependent. We can do nothing on our own. Now, in, in real parenting with, with our kids, we, the goal is to move them from dependence to independence, right? Right? We don't want to be making their meals at 30 years old every day, right? Maybe some moms want to do that, but but that's not the goal, right? But spiritually, the goal is not to go from dependence to independence. Spiritually, the goal is to go from dependence to an increasing awareness of that dependence. To, to, To grow as we go on our Christian lives, to grow in knowing more and more, I need the Father for everything. And when we ask the Father for things, we are communicating to him, we need you for everything. And we are allowing him to be our father to us. We are saying, we're children, be a father to us. We need you. And when we don't pray to him, when we don't ask him for things, we're acting, we're acting like we've got it all together. We're acting like we're older than we are. We're acting like we can do something on our own. So, so church, are you experiencing the joy of a dependent, asking relationship with God as your Father? What are you asking the Father for day by day? How regularly are you asking him for things? And are you asking rightly? Jesus says to do this in his name, right? So we've talked about this in other sermons. that come up a lot in the Upper Room Discourse, but to pray in his name is to pray believing in his work, to pray according to his will, to pray for the sake of his glory. So, so, so Jesus says, when you go to your Father and you ask him for things, believing in Jesus, praying according to his will, for the sake of his glory, that, that the Father will give it to you. He will do it. You will experience the joy of depending on him and seeing him respond. You'll experience the joy of a relationship with the Father.
Jesus has already given us, he's given us, if you believe in Christ, an unassailable joy that no one can take from you through his resurrection. But your joy will be fuller in this life, in this, in this stage we're in, this already not yet, your joy will be fuller if you are someone who lives out a dynamic asking relationship with the Father, someone who prays often and asks God often for help in every way. And just real practically, I just want to commend to you to go home and read the Lord's Prayer. How do you pray? How should we pray, Jesus? Pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's what you pray for. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the type of things you pray for. Give us bread. We need daily bread today. Forgive us our sins. We need need your forgiveness Lead us not to temptation. Deliver us from evil. These these are the things Jesus taught us to pray to his Father. And he says when we ask him for these things, the Father will say yes, and our joy will be full. Well, there's joy that we have because Jesus rose again. And there's joy that we have because the Spirit has come. But we still live right here, right now, in a broken, fallen world. We're still waiting for joy when Jesus returns. We're still waiting for the joy when Jesus comes again in glory. And when Jesus comes again in glory, we will experience everlasting joy. If you'd read with me verse 29 and following, his disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and don't need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Have you ever been in conversation with someone who thinks they get it and they don't get it? I can think of a couple. That's what's going on with the disciples here. Like, oh, now, now we get it, Jesus. Now we understand what you're talking about. Thank you. I, I really have no idea. As I've read this text, I have no idea what made them think they got it. Like, I don't know at what point Jesus was speaking and they said, oh. But at some point, they, they think they got it. And Jesus immediately says, no, you don't get it. You, you still don't get it. He immediately exposes their actual unbelief. He says to them, you think you believe in me. But this very night, you will forsake me to save your own skin. The hour is here. You're all going to scatter. You know, there's faith in the classroom and there is faith under fire. The disciples had faith in the classroom. But they did not have faith under fire yet. They forsook him. They scattered from him. When, when, when the authorities came, they, they, they all ran away and let Jesus be alone. Only the Father was with him. 
And therefore, it's surprising what Jesus says next, isn't it? I've said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So Jesus simultaneously predicts that they're going to run away in fear when the world comes for them and predicts that they will have peace in him even though the world will bring them tribulation. He, he, he at the same time, says, you're, you're going to scatter, but take heart of overcome the world, and you will have peace. Hours before the cross, Jesus declares to the disciples who are about to forsake him, take heart, I've overcome the world. And the reason Jesus can say this to them, the reason that they can have peace, the reason they can take heart, is that he is about to let himself be overcome by the world to atone for their sins. The world is coming for Jesus. They are on their way to arrest him and to kill him. And for his disciples who are about to forsake him, he lets it happen. He lays down his life for sheep. And they need him to do that because they're still in their sin. You see it right here. They forsake him. They run away from him. They're unfaithful to him. And Jesus says, I'm going to lay down my life for you. The world's going to overcome me. And therefore, you can take heart. Therefore, you can have peace. Because once I die for your sins, I will rise again, conquer death, and demonstrate my ultimate victory over this world. In a little while, the disciples won't see him because he's going to have died for their sin, risen again in victory, and ascended to the Father. But, but when he says, I have overcome the world, take heart, I've overcome the world, he is telling them, in a little while, you will see me again. In a little while, I will return in glory. I have conquered this world. I have done it all. He is coming again in glory. He will judge the sinful world, but sinners like the disciples who forsook him, who put their trust in what he did, will be saved on that day. They will have peace now because they know that day is not a day of judgment for them. It's a day of salvation for them. So, We're in this already not yet. Jesus has died for our sins and risen again. He has sent his spirit to us. He is coming again. And so when we have tribulation, what should we do? Take heart. Take heart. Whatever is going on in your life, this morning, right now, take heart. Maybe you're struggling with sin this morning. Maybe you are overwhelmed with sorrow. Maybe you're discouraged by a particular situation that's going on in your life. Maybe you're beset by sickness or beset by a disease. Maybe you are confused. Maybe you're despairing in spiritual warfare. But whatever it is, Jesus says this morning, take 
heart. Take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. We will overcome the world. Take heart because Jesus has died for us. We will live with him. Church, take heart because Jesus has risen from the dead. We will rise from the dead. Take heart because Jesus has entered into glory. We will enter into glory. Take heart because Jesus has given us his spirit. We will receive the kingdom of God. Take heart because Jesus has crushed Satan under his feet. He will crush Satan under our feet. Take heart. Because Jesus has borne our sorrows, we will experience everlasting joy. Take heart. Because Jesus has borne our sicknesses, we will experience everlasting healing. Take heart. Because Jesus has ascended to the Father. He will return to us. He will return. We live already in the new creation. The kingdom of God has come and it is here through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We get to be part of that kingdom because he died for our sins and he rose again And one day, this world will pass away and we will live forever in his glory. So take heart, church. Let's sing together. And as we do, fix our eyes on him, knowing that he will appear with us in glory.